welcome to this episode of Raising Resilience. I'm Pam Ressler, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Barbara Rabson, the president and CEO of Massachusetts Health Quality Partners. MHQP is one of the most trusted names in performance measurement and public reporting of healthcare information, both in Massachusetts and the U.S., its work is driven by the principle that the challenges facing healthcare can only be solved through collaboration and innovation across key stakeholder groups. And those stakeholders include providers of healthcare, payers of healthcare, and in my mind, most importantly, consumers of healthcare, the patients and families. In full disclosure, I'm honored to serve on the Consumer Health Council of MHQP. The definition of resilience is the ability to bend, adapt, and adjust to change. And in our current COVID-19 pandemic, that has necessitated a rapid change in healthcare and the challenge to build resilience with how we deliver care. And one of those fast-tracked areas of change has been in virtual visits, or as we call them, telehealth. Barbara has been a keen observer of this tipping point in the adoption of telehealth and the opportunities as well as perhaps the challenges and barriers it presents. So I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts today, Barbara, and what you're curious about in this um, new revolution of telehealth. So welcome. Thanks so much, Pam. It's a great pleasure and honor to, to be talking with you you and appreciate your kind words and I'm so grateful that you've been part of MHQP um, as one of our consumer council members and helping helping us in this uh, journey to improve uh, patient experiences in Massachusetts. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's a true honor, as I said, because I believe that collaboration, including patients right from the beginning, not just as a test group or focus group, is imperative as we look at changes and ways to deliver healthcare uh, more efficiently, compassionately, and effectively. So this crisis of the pandemic has, has created uh, what I said is an opportunity for telehealth, but what are you seeing and hearing from perhaps the providers or the payers or, or, or the patients at this point? Yeah, great question. And as you say, um, this change happened nearly overnight. And it was really interesting to watch because we had been looking into the challenges of access to primary care and the fact that it was so visit-based really created a lot of access challenges, particularly for vulnerable populations. And uh, we knew that the technology was there, that, that telehealth had been around for, for years and, and has been really active in some rural communities in particular where they had no other options to get care other than through digital care. Um, but, there, but the healthcare system was just really stuck on this. And it was um, particularly striking because so much um, of our other lives have become digital. And so, you know, we used to joke that um, you can pretty much do most things in your kitchen, in your bathrobe, um, in terms of accessing services and getting things done, but that was never the case for healthcare. And so, um, so there, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of resistance uh, to help to telehealth, and it was you know it was one of these things that we knew about, but just there wasn't a big pickup um, or uptake, I should say. And then COVID hit, and oh my goodness, overnight, literally overnight, um, 
healthcare systems who'd never done any virtual care put up platforms and uh, went from seeing none of their patients virtually, so in some cases 60 to 80% of their patients were seen virtually. And that's a huge change. And so we were really curious about, well, how's it going? And um, as, as you know, you've noted, MHQP really delves deep into trying to understand what the patient experience is with healthcare. And now the experience was no longer in person, it was, it was virtual. And so we quickly pivoted and said, well, let's, let's understand what's going on from the patient's perspective and from the clinician's perspective. So it's been really fascinating to do interviews with uh, patients and providers and to really learn like what, what it's like um, to have this massive flip where you're, you know, you're seeing people virtually for the first time. And so I've um, got lots of interesting stories. So let me pause and see. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. want me to launch into that or talk oh, about I, other I, stuff? No, I would love to because I think, you know, what makes this so unique in my mind is most changes in healthcare um, take a long time. And it's kind of like um, uh, trying to, to turn a battleship or another analogy like that. They don't happen overnight. And so this is really unique uh, in that uh, there was no other way. And you mentioned the rural patients have been perhaps using some virtual visits, but it was almost thought of as um, a stand-in for the real visits, which were, were face-to-face, but it was their only way to access. And now we have a situation where it pivoted overnight. Um, everyone had to get on board, whether they had um, a lot of access to um, face-to-face care or very little. And so I'd love to hear some of the stories that you're collecting now. Um, that really reflect this overnight change. So if you'd like, you know, I'd love to hear them. Thanks. Sure. And I'll start out by just saying, you know, what enabled the change. And it was um, obviously practices were seeing no patients. So Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. So the only way to see patients was to, um, to transition to telehealth. And on the payment side, uh, many of the payers, including the federal government, um, waived some of these barriers that had been uh, reimbursement barriers to telehealth so that they said, we're going to, for this situation during COVID, we are going to reimburse telehealth visits um, as if they were in-person visits. Um, because that was the only way that, that patients could be seen. And, you know, and when none of your patients are showing up and the only way you can have them seen is if you put up this platform, then of course the incentive was there to put up this platform so that um, uh, patients could be at least in touch uh, with their their clinicians to get, you know, some some care. And so what um, a lot of practices did started with phone visits because it, Mm. it does take time and technology and not all patients have access to internet or are, you know, sort of video or, or, or familiar enough to, you know, be able to manage the, you know, log on requirements uh, yeah. to get into video visits. So, so with the phone visits and, and um, we're started and in some cases, you know, quickly moved to, moved to video in some cases, um, they, you know, they were, they were able to put the platform up quickly. But the, from a patient's perspective, I mean, the gratitude that was felt wow. um, initially was just humongous because um, patients 
you know, all of a sudden were cut off. They were isolated. Um, if they were feeling ill and, and you know, and, and frightened and, um, you know, with, with the COVID, they at least had a lifeline. And so, and they were very appreciative that um, they could be, quote unquote, seen, you know, seen digitally in their home. And it gave them a level of safety because they weren't having to go out, you know, to a clinic where more sick people were. And so the first, you know, I think the first wave was just incredible gratitude. And this includes, um, you know, some patients in, in certain groups were particularly grateful. I mean, uh, young families who have young kids and busy lives and, um, you know, just schlepping to the office, even, you know, even before COVID was always a challenge. And so yes. the fact that they could be seen in their own home was great. Um, we even had talked to a patient who was agoraphobic. And mm -hmm. so it, just getting out of the house in any situation was challenging. So, it, so the idea that they could get their care at home was just, you know, uh, it was, it was just so um, welcome to them. And, you know, it was sort of like, why did this take so long? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, the <laughs> technology was there. Um, then there's, you know, other stories that we've talked to patients about. Um, they were dealing with a family member who was at, at the end of their life mm -hmm. and they wanted all the um, family members to be part of these end of life discussions. And they were literally all over the world. And so with the digital telehealth, uh, you know, everybody was able to join on these calls. And so it was, you know, it was really, um, you know, sort of remarkable. And I, so I think a lot of the um, the patient responses are like, oh, my God, you know, like, this is so wonderful. And, you know, why, why did it take so long? Um, but, and, and then there's, you know, but I, I think it's fair to say that not all, um, we only talk to patients who have had televisit. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's clearly going to be some people that, um, either opted not to because they wouldn't feel comfortable uh, speaking over the phone or they just, you know, they want to be in person or, or, or you know, or nothing. Um, and then there's a whole um, area of, you know, barriers to people that don't have access to this. But before I get to that, I want to, you know, sort of talk a little bit about the, the clinicians because, yeah. um, you know, it's always a two-way street, right? Absolutely, <laughs> and, absolutely. <laughs> And some of the, um, and so, you know, of course, you do visits in your practice, so you, mm -hmm. you know, you yes. know, um, you've had a lot of experience with that. And um, so we, the interviews we have with clinicians, um, the purpose was to say, look, you know, we really want to understand what's working and what's not working, and we want to share with you um, some best practices and emerging best practices, because this literally changed overnight. And um, clinicians are in their homes. They're not even in the office where they'd have hallway conversations about, geez, I just had a visit. It went really well. And, you know, this, I want to tell someone about, you know, I tried this and it was great. Or, you know, I had a visit. It didn't go well. And do you have any suggestions? So, you know, there's a lot of isolation going on and learning in silos. And so MHQP is, um, is planning to do a rapid survey of clinicians about what's working and what's not working so well and then to feed it back so that we can have a um, best practice sharing. And so as we did these um, interviews asking, you know, sort of testing out some of our service questions, one of the most striking things um, that I heard was that um, a, a clinician who said, it, it takes a long time to learn how to examine and interact with a patient in a new way. Mm -hmm. And if you ask any medical student, 
you know, how long it takes to learn to conduct an exam, it, it's literally years, it's not months. And so it's going to require clinicians weeks, not days, to learn how to do this differently, that this shift is not, you know, it's, it, it, it's a big deal and we're interacting differently. And uh, one example is um, a pediatrician that I talked to about doing uh, physical exams for, you know, small kids. And um, you can't poke them, right? You know, <laughs> and, and so what, what he was finding is that he, he engages the parents. And not all parents want to engage in this way, but, you know, they were willing to sort of say, okay, help me with this exam. Can you, you know, can you poke your child here? And then I'm going to watch and see how they respond. Um, so there's an opportunity for increased engagement with families and patients um, with these telehealth visits because it's, you know, the, the clinician can't do everything, right? They, they mm -hmm. need some help. And um, one thing that was interesting is that, you know, I, I think that this, the success of telehealth, um, you know, with different clinicians is going to depend on the clinician because some have the confidence and, and willingness to delegate, you know, some of this to mm -hmm. family members and they know the family members and there's a, you know, a level of trust. But in some cases, that's not there. And so, you know, so, so there's going to be, you know, yet another divide, I think, of, um, you know, how clinicians are comfortable, how comfortable they are practicing in, in, a, in a world of telehealth. Those are really interesting points. Um, I think I'm, I'm really excited about um, uh, what you said about really creating some best practices because this is a new delivery of how healthcare is delivered and there are going to be best practices that can be built out from people's rapid learning curve on, on this but i also think you know you mentioned about the communication techniques and whether that's engaging family members or a different kind of verbal and nonverbal um, mm -hmm. communication that needs to be um, supported or, or changed or talked about with telehealth, um, even just the technology. You know, how do you adjust the computer screen so you're not just seeing the top of somebody's head? Um, and, and for clinicians also, I mean, that's an important thing. What I heard from one of my physician colleagues, and I thought this was really interesting, he said he's really enjoying it because he gets to have a snapshot into his patients' lives. And he mm -hmm. works with adult patients. And he said it's, it's reminiscent of a house call uh, for him. And hmm. um, I thought that was a really interesting way of framing this. Um, it is a house call. He's being invited into somebody's space that he hasn't had um, the invitation to before. And um, he's, he says he he's really excited about this um, as an opportunity in a different way to gain more information about perhaps something they haven't spoken about. Um, and again, engaging those family members so he gets to see the pets in the home. He gets to see other people, if they are living with other people, that he wouldn't necessarily know about in that um, office visit face-to-face. Um, -face. So I thought yeah, um, it, that was great. It is great, and one of the one of the areas, you know, the types of visit that we're hearing is the most successful with telehealth, is the um, medication check-in. 
because uh-huh. you can literally bring the phone or you know, the computer <laughs> and show what's in your medicine cabinet. Wow! And sure. so you know exactly, you know what mm-hmm. what meds are being taken um, and what doses. And that's you know, like I used to hear stories of people bringing in shopping bags of drugs <laughs> and you know, sort of <laughs> dumping them on the counter and say, "Here it is." And and you know, medication reconciliation is such an important safety issue. Yeah. And here's like this wonderful, you know, okay, come into my home, look at my cabinet. And so you can talk about that. And so that's, you know, that that's one of the, you know, the great successes. Um, we've heard behavioral health is a huge success. Um, I talked to a, a pediatrician, he said, particularly with adolescents, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it used to be they'd have to come into the office and you'd set up an appointment and then you talk and then you'd say, okay, well, let's schedule something, in, you know, in a few weeks. And, it, you know, there's busy schedules and um, in particular this time of great stress um, th- you know the clinicians able to say well let's get them you know, top on the phone again next week you know and and, and mm-hmm. so to stay better in touch and so that felt you know like a real plus because behavioral health access is you know it's been such an enormous issue particularly for you know adolescents and kids so this is um, you know another thing you know the house visit um, sort of works both ways it's so mm-hmm. interesting I heard from a, um, a therapist who was saying that um, talking about you know she's doing his zoom visits from her home and and in her office she's got pictures of her children and her pets are there and and she said professionally there's always been a, a you know sort of a, a line between yeah. you know, the personal and the professional and um, and so she was really thinking about um, how much do I let them into my home, you know, and, and also mm-hmm. particularly at this time where everybody's concerned with everybody's health and, you know, the patients would ask lots of questions about, you know, how's your family doing, how's this and how's that. And so she just realized that she needed to decide what, what you know, what, she, what her answer would be and, and how she would respond to concern um, while at the same time sort of not, you know, not opening up, you know, sort of an area where they didn't have before, the keeping this, you know, professional um, distance, which, you know, was important. And so, you know, so just little things like that, um, that's, you know, who thought of that, right? You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, you didn't yeah. in yeah. the handbook, you know. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's part of, you know, I think the emerging best practices that come out of this mm-hmm. because absolutely boundaries are an issue and how um, how open a clinician may be um, is very different in when they're in a different space than their office and um, I think this is something that we have to grapple with um, again maybe the patient doesn't want us to be in their home in, in a way so I think those boundary issues on both sides are a really mm-hmm. important thing to to notice and and actually um, make some suggestions because they're very real um, so kind of on that same topic um, you know we've talked about these groups, adolescents with behavioral health issues, et cetera, that had a hard time accessing um, uh, face-to-face, either through their own um, desire or uh, there just wasn't care available, and, and now telehealth has, has helped that. But if we're going to use telehealth to be equitable, as we talk about vulnerable populations um, who may not have access um, or ability to use the internet or 
uh, enabled devices like smartphones, tablets. It could be elders, but it could be um, another group. Um, how do we make this more equitable? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's something we're just starting to learn. So, for example, when we talked to one of the safety net hospitals, um, they mentioned that one of the issues that you know concerned patients have is that they don't they don't have the minutes or the data. The data, right? I've heard plan. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's something that you know that's like, oh, okay. So you know, why should someone have to give up their data or pay extra? money on their plan to have you know to have a health visit um, there, there's also issues around um, um, we've talked um, to another safety net institution that was saying that most of their telehealth visits are English speakers and so wow. they're, they're just not getting access to the non-English speakers and they're not really sure why because they have translation services available but they were thinking that maybe it's because you know all of their communication about the availability of telehealth has been in English and and so you know so we need to you know we need to think about this and and, and do more about it and in fact this is an area where MHQP is really interested um, because as we're taking in a, a deep dive into the, the telehealth experience, we want to equally understand who's being left behind um, yes. and not able to even experience this. And so we think um, we need to do some qualitative research with communities that are, you know, that are not having the visits. You know, we're doing mm -hmm. the people with the visits. Now we have to talk to the people not having visits, right. you know, and understanding what, you know, what's going on. And um, I think that... Um, uh, we, there's, I mentioned the VA before. I think that's mm -hmm. a, that's that's a place that we can look to because um, they have a setup where they have these satellite facilities, and so you don't have to go into the clinic, but you have these facilities that have internet, they have phone, they've got some privacy, and you can do telehealth visits from a you know sort of central location. And so it's not where the clinician is, but it's where you can go if you don't have the internet and you don't have the privacy and you don't have you know some of these other things. So that's something that um, you know we will be looking into and, and and other models as well. But I think you know part of this is um, you know before we start solving, we need to understand what's going on and and you know what the reasons really are. So that's the first step is to do some research into. Um, you know, sort of what it is that's, you know, causing these people not, uh, not to uh, engage in these visits. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I love that model that the VA is experimenting with. I mean, in, in many ways, it almost sounds like a healthcare key access kiosk, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, that could be anywhere. And um, really understanding where the patients need it to be before it's, it's placed there. Um, but what an opportunity, huh? With with the yeah. thinking about and, it in that way, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, I'm just um, I was kind of excited because I was listening to a, a podcast about food. It wasn't you know, anything to do with healthcare, but one of the issues that came up is that um, this organization is based in a rural community, and they said that they're encouraging all the businesses because of COVID to make their internet available to. Um, you know, to anybody in the community, oh, wow! So that um, so that you could park, you know, nearby and maybe in your yeah. car have a telehealth visit um, because you'd have access to this. And and you know, obviously, there's issues that you know that gets into about security and all this stuff that um, you know we should also talk about. But but it just seems so um, you know this broadband issue. If you don't have that, you know, that's just step one. 
in, in terms exactly. of enabling people. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you, so you've given me some ideas about um, perhaps the direction that this needs to go to create broader access, et cetera. But are there specific things that need to happen for telehealth to continue to be robust once we're post-COVID, whenever that may be? Are there specific things that from a systems uh, point, uh, you know, a, a legislative point, uh, individual, that, that must happen to really keep this um, from fading away when we don't need it in the same way that we're seeing it now? Yeah, great question. And, um, and the answer is, of course, yes. Um, the, you know, I mentioned that some of the barriers, the payment barriers uh, were removed so that uh, patients, uh, so that primary care and other physician organizations could actually get paid to, you know, to, yeah. to provide these kind of services. And the big worry is that once COVID is over, um, then, you know, that the payment would, would shrink considerably and, um, and that it would, you know, discourage provider organizations um, from continuing to offer the service because it's, you know, there's a significant mm -hmm. cost to putting up these platforms and, and, and so many provider organizations are in terrible shape right now because, yeah. you know, of the loss of patients, even though they're able to move to telehealth, you know, at some expense, there's just, you know, the, the world is financially is, is, you know, very challenging because of the payment system most healthcare systems on, which is a fee for service. And if you don't show up, you don't get paid. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that the whole payment system of how primary care and, um, in particular gets paid if, if you know, there's a lo lot of folks, uh, a lot of us urging to move more towards a, um, a capitated model where you, you pay to um, the practice to keep people wealthy, or excuse me, keep them healthy. Um, Wealthy would be another thing. That, um, but also, maybe they're not paying for parking, <laughs> right? Not a bad thing since uh, <laughs> yeah. people are unemployed. That's right. Um, so there's, um, so there's, so there'll, there'll be policies, uh, both you know, governmental and uh, insurer policies about telehealth. And I do know that insurers are very nervous that um, telehealth will be an additive, not a substitute um, uh -huh. for in-person visits and so there's a very concern that they're going to you know all of a sudden there gonna be twice as many visits as there as there were before right. and so you know of course um you know everything's nuanced and complicated and so um so we need a really rational um policy and the more data we can get about you know which kind of patients this works you know what works about it um you know would be better and and um so mhtp you know, we've been doing this this dive into trying to understand, you know, what kind of visits and so forth. Um, but there's also, you know, as I said, we're also finding out it really depends on the clinician, it depends on the patient, and um, I mean, it, it would be almost inexcusable to say um, post-COVID, but um, you know, pre-vaccine, <laughs> when uh, particularly people with chronic uh, diseases are still very vulnerable to getting a virus, mm -hmm. that they should have to come in. Um, for visits when they could have a, a visit at home. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and uh, you know, that brings to another thing, uh, issue that needs to happen is we've talked about telehealth, but not so much telemonitoring. And uh, so one yeah. of the big things that's missing um, is, is the exam and being able to have, you know, vital signs and, you know, weights and blood tests and lab tests 
and um, you know x-rays and so forth and so um, there is a lot of technical capability to do um, the you know the telemonitoring of, of patients and, and a lot of patients have devices where they track you know their blood pressure or their mm -hmm. pulse their you know all kinds of things and so the question is how do you you know what what's this next phase look like in terms of being able to incorporate that into the into the telehealth visits so that you can actually you know see the patients that have the information all the information you need. Um, and in some cases it's possible, in some cases it, it won't be possible, but we can do a lot more than we're doing now. Um, and again, I think this gets, will, will help with the patient engagement in some cases because, you know, if you're doing all this self-management and then you share the data, um, you know, that, that seems like a win-win because you're working more as a team. Um, an interesting um, uh, observation, though, is I heard a, a, a clinician say that they're sending blood pressure cuffs, home, you know, home blood pressure cuffs yeah. to some patients so that patients can monitor their blood pressure and let the clinician know. But for quality measurement, which is, you know, my area, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the specifications on the quality measures does not allow the blood pressure to, to become, to be reported by the patient. It has to be reported by the clinician. Oh. So obviously we've got work to do to, you know, to yeah. update that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of updating that, that will actually lead to uh, how we do this now because, you know, things like blood uh, glucose monitoring um, can now be done via Bluetooth being sent directly to the clinician, um, being part of the record and everything. So it, it's using kind of those wearable devices, the, the technologies that are out there and combining them into the, the telehealth platform that may need to happen along with the regulations that, that you spoke of to really um, make this an incentive for clinicians as well as patients. But I think there is an, an incredible opportunity here that came out of such crisis and chaos and mm -hmm. to, to honor that. And that's my whole thing about resilience and how do we adapt to um, and bend and change um, with crisis and with, with chaos. And um, that's why I'm so excited about some of these things. And I, I certainly recognize the challenges, um, but also the opportunities. And I'm so thrilled that um, MHQP is really at the fore of, of noticing that this is something dramatic that has happened overnight. And we've now, we're now going to have data for at least a few months. So um, it will be really interesting to develop some best practices out of this and um, see where we come out on the other side. So we've been speaking about resilience on, on a systems basis, on a, a large-scale basis. What about an individual basis? So what do you do to raise your resilience, Barbara? Oh, that's such a good question, Pam. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've been working like crazy. And um, so, yes, of course, you know, you need, you need the resilience to, to be able to get the work done. So I have a few outlets. Um, one of them is that um, I took up the cello uh, five years ago. I played the French horn for 43 years um, wow. and then decided it was time for a switch. So 
Um, I'm fairly new to the instrument, and I've been. Um, it's but it's really important to me because it uses a part of your brain, um, particularly as you're learning an instrument, um, that that just really helps. Um, calm your body. <laughs> and so, um, and, and you know, we're talking about virtual, uh, virtual visits. I have virtual cello lessons. Wow. And I don't, <laughs> I don't like them nearly as much as my in-person visits because we often use, you know, we play duets and you can't do that. Um, but it, but it, it's effective. And so, um, so that's a piece that I've been, you know, really I try to practice every day. And another thing is that um, I, I'm a sculler, and so uh, my husband and I both scull on the Charles, and our boathouse has been closed because of COVID um, since, you know, early March. And this week uh, it opened up on a limited basis, and we got to go sculling um, on Tuesday morning, and it was beautiful. It was just such a wonderful morning, and the, the beauty of being on the river is that you see up close birds up close, and so we saw um, uh, uh, so many um, blue herons and bearded herons and little gooselings that had just hatched. And so it, it's really wonderful. So, so um, I'm also I'm an outdoor person. So spending time outdoors, I literally work outside most of the day in my backyard, and I take lots of walks. So <laughs> that's what. Um, that's yeah. my resilience. Oh, well, those are fabulous things. And, and I agree. One of the things I've been noticing is because of the lack of traffic and just all kinds of other busyness, there have been so many more birds that mm. I've been noticing. And the bird songs in the morning are so... Are, are so much louder in a way. And I think it's because of the lack of traffic. So, um, you know, I've been noticing things like that too. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me today, Barbara. This has been so interesting and I, I just really um, respect so much um, your work and uh, MHQP's work on, on really being at the fore of this new challenge that is... Um, uh, in healthcare, and how might we learn from it and make best practices out of it, I think is a fabulous opportunity. So I really appreciate you taking the time and um, um, good work. <laughs> Keep going um, with this. <laughs> thanks so much, Pam. I, I'm so appreciative, and it's, it's been such a pleasure to be working with you. And um, I, this is very exciting for me, and um, look forward to, you know, keeping going down this journey together because uh, we have a lot to learn from you. So, well, we really have a lot to learn, all of us, together with this, this new place. So being resilient as we move through these uncertain times, you know, resilience really is key. It, it really opens us to change and adaptability and keeps our curiosity. So um, I think if we can stay there, um, it's all good. So thanks again, Barbara. And okay, thanks, thanks Pam. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raising Resilience. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and take care.